Do you find the number of books he reads and then cites to be somewhat irritating? <laughs> a little, yeah. yeah. It's a little okay. bit overwhelming, <laughs> yeah. Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the cascading indictments podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on February 26, 2018. I'm Nicholas Terry, law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined by my co-host and one-man reality show. <laughs> Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland Francis King Carey School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And this week, we greet Diane Hoffman, director of the Law and Healthcare Program, and Jacob A. France, Professor of Healthcare Law at, well, there's a coincidence, the University of Maryland Francis King Carey School of Law. <laughs> Her research interests include issues at the intersection of law, healthcare ethics, and public policy, such as advanced directives, pain treatment, termination of life support, genetics, regulation of research, and most recently, the regulation of biological substances. Huge welcome to the pod, Diane. Thanks. It's great to be here. Oh, it's good to hear your voice. Of course, I only work with Frank once a week. What's it like being his everyday fearless leader? It's fabulous. I can ask him oh. questions anytime I want. He always has a ready answer. He responds to his email. Well, you probably know that as well immediately. Mm -hmm. And he's a wonderful colleague. So I'm very happy to have him next door to my office. Yes. Oh, well, thank you, Diane. The feeling is mutual. It's so wonderful to have you on the show and finally, you know, get a chance to bring your work to the to our audience. So this is terrific. Before we get to your current research, Diane, I was thinking back to the first project we were involved in together, which was working to reduce the legal barriers to pain treatment and educating doctors away from the undertreatment of pain. Yes. So now I'm heavily involved in a research project concerning the current opioids addiction crisis. And of course, one of the issues most discussed is supply-side constriction of pain medication, either by directly limiting prescription amounts or indirectly by sort of re-educating physicians in the opposite direction, linking them to prescription drug monitoring software and so on. I, I was thinking about this as I was reading your bio, and I, I, I guess uh, there's nothing quite so circular as health policy, or, or maybe policy whiplash is a better way of thinking about it. <laughs> I think that's absolutely right, and uh, things that we were writing about and looking into 20 years ago uh, seemed to come back again in some other form. Yep, it's uh, I'm continuing to be involved in that issue as well. So we're going to be talking about your most recent research that's concentrated on uh, probiotics. And uh, the early stuff, and I've heard you talk about uh, this uh, before, and uh, there's no doubt who the, uh, the, the incredible expert here is, um, sort of the early stuff um, using human Human and animal substances in cosmetics, um, foodstuffs like yeast and yogurt and so on. But more and more, I feel you're sort of dragging us into more complex spaces, both involving microbiome products and also into microbial genetics. So how about starting us off with a primer on the terminology and the sort of the science that you're dealing with here? I'll do the best I can because 
because I'm not a scientist or microbiologist, but I've learned a lot about this area. So the effort to kind of determine and identify and describe the different microorganisms within and on our bodies just really started in the 2000s. We, the science was not, we couldn't cultivate a lot of the microorganisms inside us outside the body because those organisms needed to grow, needed an environment that relied on other microorganisms, a kind of a community of microorganisms. And so it was only with the development of certain uh, DNA technologies, uh, RNA sequencing, uh, that we have been able to identify these microorganisms. And as a result, this had gave the impetus for trying to better understand these microorganisms and how they affect our health, uh, our susceptibility to disease, as well as our maybe immunity or um, ability to fight diseases and infections. So in 2007, I believe the National Institutes of Health started the Human Microbiome Project, which was a funding effort primarily to look at the uh, fund science and scientists to identify these microorganisms and start to look at how they were connected to health and disease. At the same time that they were funding the medical profession and the scientific community, they also, just like with the Human Genome Project, where they allocated a certain percentage of the budget to look at ethical, legal, and social issues, they did the same thing with the Human Microbiome Project, which led me and some of my colleagues to apply for grants in that area. So that's how I became involved initially. And my I'm in a nice position here at the University of Maryland, where at our medical school, we have a number of people with expertise in the human microbiome. And uh, I've been started out collaborating with them. And the initial issues about regulation had started with looking at probiotics. And probiotics is really a very broad term. There's no legal or regulatory definition of it. And so it includes kind of any live microorganisms that are used with the intent of making people uh, feel better, um, some kind of beneficial therapeutic effect. And those primarily have been foods and dietary supplements, but we're now moving, they're now moving into the drug category or drug sphere and FDA is attempting to regulate them in that way, which is some of the, it raises some of the issues that we looked at in, in the research that I've been involved with. Ah, that's great, Diane. And yeah, I, I really appreciate that scientific background here. And I just wanted to make one analogy before going to the next question, which is, you know, going over some of your presentations and publications, including in science, a very recent publication in Science Magazine, you talk about how probiotics are different in the sense that they are live organisms, they're likely to lose viability and degrade sometimes, um, the dosing could be very tricky, animal models may be of limited utility. I was reminded a little bit about biologics, and we've had uh, Eric Elitzen on the show to talk about biologics and some of the different issues that they raise, biosimilars raise, um, as opposed to generics in the pharma space. 
So it's great to see you're working on this this sort of cutting edge aspect of the, in this regulatory space. But before we get into the law, I guess I just it might be really helpful to give a little more background in terms of uh, what the current market is, what the highest hopes are for technology like this, and what are some of the real pitfalls that we want to avoid. There's a lot of hype out there with respect to uh, the microbiome and the products that it is generating in the marketplace. And so the kinds of things that we're seeing and the, and the potential market uh, is, is incredibly large, potentially, in Europe and the United States. These people, because the, they advertise them, uh, these products as healthful, and people are becoming much more interested in products that will make them healthy through foods and dietary supplements. And so they people like yogurt manufacturers can charge a an additional amount, a markup on their products for the fact that uh, at least they claim that these products can increase um, healthfulness. There are also uh, demands for, we're starting to see um, a market for personal care products, things like lotions and creams and toothpaste. And they think they are claiming to do things like prevent tooth decay and gum disease and reduce bad breath. And, and now we're starting to see, as I said, products go through the drug approval process and startups and even large pharmaceutical companies trying to get into the market here. Uh, but this is still still pretty early in that in the clinical trial process for some of these for most of these products. And just to also add in about you know potential applications here, and I don't want to jump the gun, but I remember seeing one of your presentations and discussing how this could be a lifesaver for people with C. diff, right? Because if they if the people, for example, who might take an, an antibiotic and then uh, wipe out a lot of their stomach biota, and then they get colonized by a very dangerous bacteria that causes them enormous you know gastrointestinal distress. Uh, and you know has all sorts of other knock-on effects. I think I've read some things about um, first that this that these sort of uh, probiotics or, or, or the transplants, uh, fecal transplants, could uh, cure the the really persistent intractable C diff infections for some people. And also the very fascinating uh, element that at one point someone who was very thin got the uh, transplant, a fecal transplant from someone who was relatively overweight and ended up getting overweight, uh, suggesting that these this type of biota might. I have all sorts of implications that we're just barely beginning to understand in terms of regulation of weight, adipose percentage, things like that. And I, I, I was wondering if you might, are, are these like sort of outlier stories or are these close to the core of the concerns that FDA and others are thinking about in the regulatory space here? Well, yes, I mean, there, there are those concerns, but going back to your first point about potential life-saving uh, ability. So moving on from probiotics, the new wave of of procedures and products are microbiota transplants. And the first one we're really seeing being used in the medical community are fecal microbiota transplants for C. difficile infection, which is one of the most significant hospital-acquired infections where people uh, can die from it, and many people do die for it from it annually in this country and throughout the world. And what physicians have discovered is that it's quite effective in really 
actually curing C. diff for many, many patients. It's, it's a very high effectiveness, much higher than uh, the antibiotics that are used to treat C. diff. So for people who have not been able to successfully treat their C. diff through antibiotics, um, their, their gastroenterologist will often recommend uh, a fecal microbiota transplant. And while it has been very effective for this, you're correct that there have been some um, small studies indicating that uh, an individual who um, has a transplant from someone who is obese may also start to gain weight and become overweight. And some of this has been done in mice as mostly of this research, but there's some and there's some data from humans as well. So it is an interesting area in terms of potential long-term problems. Take those potential benefits, but some research about risk and start moving into regulation. How about starting us off with the distinction or difference between structure function claims and disease claims? And how does that fit into the regulatory picture? For probiotics, this is really relevant to foods and, and dietary supplements, they can make what are called structure function claims. An example is um, milk builds strong bones and and teeth. And that um, that's, as as it sounds like, it's about the structure of your body. It's not something that says it's going to help you um, reduce the uh, osteoporosis or some other uh, bone um, disease. And FDA allows manufacturers to make structure function function claims without getting prior approval prior to marketing. But if you're going to make a disease claim like this, eating this uh, yogurt or taking this dietary supplement is going to reduce your risk of osteoporosis, then that becomes may become a drug claim and you'll have to get a drug, uh, go through the drug approval process, which is a very lengthy and expensive process. A product such as this potentially could be viewed as a drug, potentially it could be viewed as a dietary supplement, potentially as a food. Yes. <laughs> what hinges on the classification. Okay, and I want to make sure we're talking, we're not talking about fecal microbiota transplants. That can't be a... F- no, no, no. no. Okay. We're, we're, we're back <laughs> okay. up. We're back up to uh, probiotics yes, yes. and, so, and so the microbiota. We don't want to mix that <laughs> I up. I apologize for... So, um, <laughs> so probiotics, yes. So it's basically the claims that the manufacturer wants to make about the product, whether or not the... And the intent is the intent to treat uh, or mitigate the symptoms of or prevent disease or... Or is it to affect the structure function of the body? Uh, those are the the differences that FDA will take into effect when deciding whether something which which category it's going to fall within. Did I answer your question? I guess so. The the implication, though. I see. Okay. Right. Right. From that okay. that classification, exactly. where does that where does that take us the, uh, along along the the regulatory right. track? So, food and supplement manufacturers would rather not have their product go through the drug approval process because it's going to be, as I said, a very expensive, costly pro- process. It can take years and millions and millions of dollars. And they may, they, they already have often marketed the product uh, as a drug or, or food. And they, they want to keep it in that, in that sphere. And if it's, um, going into, 
it may not, um, they may not be able to capture any kind of exclusivity or um, the potential kinds of um, uh, market protections that a drug would have um, because someone can just eat another yogurt that's sold as a food on the marketplace. Now, it may not have the same strains in it, but it could have the same strains of a microorganism, a bacteria, if it didn't want, but it wasn't making the same kind of claims. So it would all be about the claims. In one, in the grocery store, you could buy the yogurt with the same strains of bifidobacterium. But if you didn't say on the, on the label that you were, this was going to reduce colds and flu symptoms, but you sold the same product in the drugstore and wanted to make those claims, then it's, it's going through the drug process, but you can't necessarily exclude the other products from the market. Got it. Okay, so one of the ways in which we can think about this, and this this conversation is reminding me a little bit of our conversation with Joanna Sachs about uh, GMOs and potential overregulation of something that really is doesn't merit a certain level of regulation. And I think that's been part of your project, right, Diane, to sort of look at whether the current FDA regulatory scheme is adequate and appropriate for probiotics or whether it's sort of overregulating. And I'm wondering sort of what your overall uh, conclusion has been there or or are there ways in which it underregulates too? Is there are there conclusions there that you over the years have drawn about the the overall the, your your headline uh, on the overall uh, FDA stance there for probiotics? I think we identified and for for microbiota transplants. I think there's both over under over and under regulation with respect to over regulation. This effort to push everything into the drug category may be overreaching to some extent. When as I said, you have some food products and dietary supplement products on the market that have been shown to be safe, at least, um, we thought that there should be some modification to the IND process. Some of those types of uh, products shouldn't have to go through the phase one IND process for safety. Uh, but it, but if they want to prove the uh, veracity of the claims, then it should have to go through for effectiveness. On the other hand, there's probably under-regulation of claims. There are a lot of products out there on the market that are making all sorts of crazy claims. And FDA just doesn't have the enforcement resources to go after them. FTC has been more active actually in going after some of the large manufacturers of probiotics for uh, unsubstantiated claims and has had, these have been high visibility type um, products, including Activia yogurt um, and a product by a subsidiary of a Nestle company called Kids Boost Essentials, a, a drink with the probiotics in the straw. Those two pro- those two companies were uh, identified by the FTC, and uh, FTC went after them for these, uh, as I said, unsubstantiated claims. Um, on the microbiota transplant side, we're seeing some interesting things, and um, most recently, well, I mentioned fecal microbiota transplants, and that's a fascinating area with some really fascinating issues with respect to regulation, but we're also just starting to 
see efforts at vaginal microbiota transplants and vaginal seeding. You may have heard something about vaginal seeding, which is efforts by parents who have a baby born by C-section to take a vaginal microbiota from the mom and wipe the baby down all over when it's born because there's some thinking that children who are born by C-section are more at risk for obesity, allergies, asthma, as they get older. And one thought is that maybe it's because they're not getting some benefit from the natural delivery where they would be exposed to the mother's vaginal microbiome. And what FDA is saying, at least initially, to some folks who are um, looking to do a clinical trial on this, and people not only in the research setting, but in practice, there are anecdotal reports from OBGYNs that mothers are asking for this if they are having a scheduled C-section. So it appears, at least from in some initial correspondence from FDA, that uh, this needs an IND. These researchers uh, need to submit an IND to FDA before they continue with this research. And it, again, this is something that doesn't seem like a traditional drug at all, uh, given that it's from the mother, that the baby would usually have gotten this exposure if born vaginally, but is simply bypassing that exposure by being delivered by C-section. So potentially there's maybe some overreaching there as well. Uh, although we don't know, assuming they're screened, the mothers are screened correctly and the doctors would do a, a C-section in any case if there were any doubts about a, um, a vaginal birth. So let's let's pop back to the probiotics for, for a moment, if we may. Um, it's was, it was interesting that you started talking about the mm -hmm. FTC in this context, because it strikes me that a lot of what we might be worried about here is not really FDA territory, but is consumer protection territory. I mean, it reminds me of um, uh, the supplement industry. Remember, Frank, we talked on the show about the New York Attorney General's raid on uh, New York um, uh, pharmacies and everything and, and making the pharmacies uh, uh, take uh, the, the dodgily labeled uh, supplements off the shelves and so on. Oh, yes. Uh, I, I wondered whether... Um, that's really perhaps where we should be putting more of our attention? Or is this a sort of classic one foot in one agency, one in the other problem? No, I think I think that may be right in terms of advertising and, well, labeling, really, in the probiotic area with foods and dietary supplements. I think FTC can do more. FDA has issued some warning letters to companies, but really not that many, and certainly not as many as if you go on the internet and try to find these companies and look up some of these products that they're selling and what they're saying about them. So I think that the FTC can certainly do more in this area. And FDA, I, I think they do go together. There are some things that FDA can do as well. But one area with these claims is, is something that I think FTC can be perhaps most effective in. There's also a detailed point about FDCA law, right? This lock-in provision. How 
How does that play here? Yeah, so that's another thing that foods and dietary supplement manufacturers have seen as a problem for the regulation of probiotics because any time that something has a product has gone through some significant clinical trials, it's basically going to be considered a, a drug. And uh, again, this was this issue that I mentioned before that foods and dietary supplement manufacturers don't want their products to be in the drug category if they have already marketed them as a, as a food or dietary supplement. There is some exception to that lock-in provision, um, which actually is if they have pro- and had been on the market as a food or dietary supplement, but um, they still are, you know, again, something like a, again, a lot of the dairy products uh, would be examples that somebody may want to do research on because uh, they think that it could have a a therapeutic benefit. And if they start to do the clinical trials, it's kind of once you go down that route, you can't go back. And the problem is if you want to make a claim and you want to substantiate that claim, you may have to do some type of clinical trials to show that it is effective in, um, you know, again, I'm going back to reducing the symptoms of colds and flus. So you're in this kind of catch-22. Um, because both FTC and FDA are requiring even for any kinds of claims, even for uh, risk reduction claims, that you have to have two clinical trials generally that will support your claims. And the, another issue with a lot of the structure function claims that uh, manufacturers want to substantiate are that they don't have good, clear endpoints because a lot of them, again, are kind of amorphous, especially with the, with um, their effect on the gut micro, microbiome. They may be something like ensures uh, gut health or well-being, general well-being. Well, what are you going to measure for gut health? And what are you going to measure for general well-being? We don't have good endpoints for those kinds of claims. Yeah, that is a real problem in terms of those endpoint definitions. And, you know, but the one thing I was going to mention about the supplement market, I think, is a really interesting analogy, Nick. And the one little caveat I would put in there in terms of like, uh, is that I sometimes worry that parts of the supplement market really are endangering people. Like, for example, if someone has bipolar and then they pick up St. John's work because they figure, well, you know, I'm feeling depressed today and I, this seems to be a pick me up, they could really exacerbate the manic side of it. And, you know, I think there's a, but of course, that's a question of maybe medicine as opposed to should St. John's work be available to everyone without a prescription. Um, But it is such an interesting question. And I find also, as I try to teach people about mental health apps, I keep running into the brick wall of a lot of folks saying, well, it's just, you know, uh, it's it's therapy and it's being marketed as therapy, but it's just something to make someone feel better. So why are we worried about it? And I just, I think there's a lot of ways in which there can be slippery slopes there. But I I think that just to to move on to the science article, I mean, unless you want to respond to that, Diane, but I just wanted to to possibly move to your definitional piece in science. I, I thought that was just a, a major accomplishment in terms of like getting really clear uh, clarification as to exactly what is going on with respect to these fecal microbiota transplants and how different the different types of therapy could be. And I'm wondering if you could uh, men- describe the uh, the goal of this uh, working group that you were part of and that was uh, for the science article and that how the definitional questions here, uh, first, how they got resolved and secondly, how that 
that matters for the future of regulation in the area. For each of our projects, the one on probiotics and on microbiota transplants, we put together a, a working group that consisted of about 25 to 30 people, including microbiome scientists, clinicians, legal academics, food and drug law attorneys, bioethicists, patient and consumer representatives, industry representatives, and some regulators. And we used we relied on them to some extent to react to ideas that we came up with, to react to case studies, to inform our thinking as we attempted to uh, think through the different regulatory issues that uh, this new, these new types of therapies um, were creating. So in terms of the definitional issues, one of the questions that came up early on with the fecal microbiota transplants were, or and microbiota transplants more generally, was what, how is it different from the kinds of stool-based products that a number of biotech startups, uh, pharmaceutical companies are now trying to put through clinical trials? Um, are they all fecal microbiota transplants? And is there something about the more, what I'll call the more natural in, the, in a spectrum of products, uh, what makes it different from what is being regulated as a drug? On the drug end, you have something that might be more, more synthetic um, or a specific strain that's pulled out of a, or a specific microorganism. Whereas in the more natural product, you're looking at a community of microorganisms. And there's something, we don't know what the mechanism of effectiveness is in the fecal microbiota transplants. That's unknown. And that's one of the other things that makes it very different from a drug in that it's in a, to have a drug go through the FDA approval process, you need to be able to characterize it with some certainty and, and ideally have some understanding of the what's active ingredients, uh, active components and the effective components. But we really don't know that about these microbiota, microbiomes, the organisms that we're transplanting when we do something like a microbiota transplant. And there may be some thinking that there may be synergies or that go on when these microorganisms are part of the community. And when you try to deconstruct them, you then make them less effective. So that's the that's a kind of a scientific issue. But there are also the regulatory issues may be that maybe there's a line that we should think of uh, between what's a drug and what should be regulated by uh, as a more like tissues or cells or other transplanted products are regulated. And so when you talk about something as a transplant, it's uh, what comes to mind is something like organ transplants or human cells and tissue transplants or uh, blood transfusions. And what we have here with the fecal microbiota transplant is is a procedure and a, and a product. Again, the product, though, is, again, coming from the human body. And as you get down the, the spectrum of different kinds of stool-based products, you're going to be adding to that stool-based product. 
you're going to be maybe freezing it or drying it or adding saline solution to it, uh, um, putting it in, in capsule, synthesizing some cultures, all, all sorts of different ways that you may manipulate the product before it's in your traditional drug form where you can adequately control the characterization of it, uh, the dose of it, the potency of it, all of those things. I remember when I had my final interview with my guidance counselor, <laughs> he suggested that that maybe I was well qualified to manage no. a stool bank. <laughs> Um, (laughs) but i was i was wondering in the you you and your co-authors propose a sort of three-track regulatory scheme and i'm i'm thinking that what you've just been talking about is the third which is the the sort of the modifications to if you like the natural Mm -hmm. product and so on but i was interested in why you made a distinction between what you call track one track two track one being a transplant uh, performed by a physician with stool acquired from someone known to the physician or to the patient and the stool bank issue, which you thought should be regulated Correct. differently. So in some ways, um, I think we there's thinking that someone that you know and trust that's not a stranger to you, you uh, are more likely to know their, their health and their habits and things that could affect their microbiome. You still would want to test that person and screen them and go through a physician to do that. But when you get to a stool bank, there are your it's more institutional. You're relying on them to screen and identify the donors, to have sterile facilities, to package and uh, maintain the stool in appropriate storage facilities, and all the things that you would want regulated. And so we felt that that required another level of regulation, just like we regulate blood banks and tissue banks. We think there should be regulation of stool banks. Right now, they're not regulated. Whereas the if you're getting it from a friend or family member, and that, that friend or family member takes the sample to the physician's office or hospital or clinic, and they then will, uh, you have the physician is overseeing it through the practice of medicine, there would be, they would be required to comply with a standard of care and would could be accountable for any kind of mismanagement or mishandling handling or misscreening that would go on where they don't have that same type of control getting it from the stool bank. Yeah, and this is such a fascinating area in terms of looking at like uh, some very strange and troubling unregulated mm-hmm. stem cell therapy yes. clinics that are now yes. out there. And is, so is this a broader problem in terms of regulatory arbitrage? Well, it's interesting. There are a lot of, I think, these stem cell clinics out there that are unregulated. With respect to stool banks, there actually is one very large stool bank. And it's pretty much occupied, has kind of a monopoly in the country. It's in Massachusetts and it's a non-for-profit stool bank. And I think most everyone who, physicians who obtain the products from them, the name of the company is Open Biome, and they do an extremely good job of screening donors. The, most of their donors uh, come from our undergraduates or, well, maybe graduate students too, at Tufts University because they uh, are located in Somerville near Tufts, and they're extremely healthy. And they do everything, I think, that they probably should be doing, and maybe even more. But there's nothing preventing 
preventing another stool bank from emerging and and not applying good practices and practices that we would hope make sure that the samples are, are safe and sanitary and that someone wouldn't get infections from them. And that was The Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professor Hoffman. What a delight to have you on the pod. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be on it and always, always a pleasure to talk to the two of you. Ah, you're too kind. We post our show notes at twill.com. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter and Frank, as well as being in the office next door to you, (laughs) can be reached at at HealthPI or at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week.